For some weeks now, I have sensed God speaking a theme just in the Holy Spirit without Him giving me words per se, but the focus is about victory. God wants us to walk in a greater level of victory. And it's going to take a little bit different form than just, hey, we all have struggles, we want to be on top of those. So let's dig into that. I want to ask, start with a question. Actually, two questions. Number one, number one is, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? The second question is, what would you do if you knew there was no security? No security. What would you do? If we ask the first question, what would you do if you couldn't fail? If you knew, you absolutely knew you couldn't fail. What goals would you set? How big would you shoot? I can do anything that I choose to do knowing I'm going to be successful. You'd be at your peak. Would you be at your peak performance every single day? Or might you, hey, I can relax. It's going to work out anyhow. I can't fail. You can begin to see that there's two sides to this thought process. The question has the power to shift how you think, shift how you feel, and ultimately shift what you would do. To think in a way that gives you that feeling of certainty. Then you can do your best right in that moment. But there's a problem with this question. There's an initial burst of energy you might get by thinking this way. It's exciting contemplate but the problem is it asks you to believe something that you absolutely know isn't true and so ultimately it catches up with us deep down you know you can fail in fact you know you will fail and in fact failures are part of the process we go through to learn and grow and get better we want to avoid failure. We don't like that embarrassment, that unpleasantness. But it's part of our life. And then there are those who advocate the other question. What if you knew, what would you do if you knew there was no security? It's an odd question. There's lots of different ways you could consider it and respond to it. There's this sense that it heightens your sense of living in the now because, hey, it could be worse tomorrow. Of being grateful for what, you're ha what you have and not taking it for granted. That knowing any moment you could lose your health, your wealth, your loved ones. The problem with this second question is we become anxious when there's no security. When there's no stability. Our confidence is much more easily shaken in that context. And perhaps you've had seasons of your life that were like that. 
and it's not a fun place to be. So today, as I said, I'd like to talk about victory. Where my key text this morning is 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. And I like the way the Passion Translation puts it. God always makes His grace visible in Christ, who includes us as partners of His endless triumph. Through our yielded lives, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. We have become the unmistakable aroma of the victory of the Anointed One to God. A perfume of life to those being saved and the odor of death. That's a real complimentary statement. To those who are perishing. The unbelievers smell a deadly stench that leads to death, but believers smell the life-giving aroma that leads to abundant life. And who of us can rise to this challenge? For unlike so many, we are not peddlers of God's word who water down the message. We are those sent from God with pure motives who speak in sight of God, in the sight of God, from our union with Christ. It's talking about you. You are an odor to some good, to some bad. You are in partnership with his endless triumph, never-ending triumph. We are meant to walk in a continual state of victory. Victory doesn't mean we never fail, but victory means we always prevail and are back on top. I don't know about you, but that hasn't always marked my life. We do go through seasons where we struggle, where we don't have that perspective, where we don't walk in what he's provided. The message changes those phrases just a little bit, the Message Bible. It says, in one perpetual victory parade. That's what we're meant to walk in. Through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of what it means to know him. This is a terrific responsibility. And it asks the question, is anyone competent to take it in? And the answer is no, in and of ourselves. But we stand in Christ's presence when we speak. God looks us in the face. And we get what we say straight from God and say it as honestly as we can. How impacting would it be if every moment of every day we were walking in that kind of victory, that endless parade of his triumph, not compromised, in his presence, knowing he's looking at our face, hearing his voice, and spreading the sweet odor of his grace to all we meet. It's a powerful picture. A little scary too, perhaps. We operate from victory. We're not trying to achieve victory. We're not trying to step into victory in the sense that he's already accomplished it. We are trying to step into it in terms of receiving, accepting, manifesting it. 
It's both an Old Testament and a New Testament pattern. The Old Testament is more victory and physical war. The battle is the Lord's. The New Testament is more spiritual war. It has already been one. We have to live in it. Deuteronomy 24 says to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. This is God speaking. I will do this. The Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 10, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And we know that when they went up against Jericho, everything went fine. They didn't lose one soul. When they went up against Ai, things changed a little bit because of the sin in the camp from Achan. But they were so grieved that they lost anybody. This victory, this going in against and conquering the promised land and taking what the Lord had said was theirs was meant to be done without the loss of one life because God was fighting for them. That's the kind of victory we're meant to walk in. It says that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And Jehoshaphat had the same experience when he was facing tremendous armies of gathered kings and God says, I'm going to do this. Set your worshipers in order. They're going to go out first. And the battle was won before it even began. Your battle has been won 2,000 years ago before it even had a chance to exist. First John 5, 4 says, the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's how we walk in that. That's how we accept and receive the victory that has already been won. John 16 says, these things I have spoken to you that you might have peace in the world. Peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms that have already been conquered by Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord. It is a gift. It's nothing we can earn. It's something we can activate and walk in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. <clears throat> so why is it we so often walk around waiting for the other shoe to drop. Interesting saying. It comes from mid-18th mid century when the tenement houses in New York City were thrown up in a hurry because of the growth that was taking place and didn't have that much soundproofing and one family would be living in, above another and when they would retire at night, if you were below them, you'd hear, you'd hear it clomp as they dropped a shoe 
And in order to go back to sleep, you would anticipate the drop of the other shoe so you knew it was over. And we do that. We have things that strike us in our life. And I said, I knew that was going to happen. And I'll bet you there's another one right around the corner. Especially if it's an area of weakness, an area that the enemy's been able to exploit in our life before. We We almost expect this to happen. And I assure you, if you're waiting for the shoe to drop, one of two things will happen. It will, or it will drive you, drive you crazy waiting for it. The alertness created by the first shoe combines with a sense of the inevitable. Here comes the second. And it ramps up either our anxiety or our faith. And we get to choose. So rather than waiting for the other shoe to drop, let's just know we can win barefoot. From glory to glory, we are being transformed and conformed. First, Second Corinthians 3.18 With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And there's a corollary to that. Victory to victory. From victory to greater victory. And I'd like to make this analogy. Perhaps you've heard the idea of living in blessing is better than miraculous provision. The idea being that if you are in desperate need and God comes through in a miraculous way, boy, it is exciting. But isn't it better to live in the continual state of blessing when all you need is provided for and you aren't constantly in a crisis where that miraculous provision has to come through? It's a much more comfortable place to be. And so likewise, when it comes to victory, living from victory is better than miraculous deliverance. Yes, we need those occasional times where, hey, I am in a desperate place. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for this breakthrough. But God wants to do the same in that regard as he does Blessing. He wants us to continually walk in that, in a state of stability, not up and down, not broken, not struggling, but just a sense of, you are faithful. And I know I've been here a thousand times before, and every time you've come through, I don't have to worry about the shoe dropping. You are a great God. And that does come from experience. The more times you've seen that happen, the more secure you can walk in it when it looks otherwise. Scripture says that gates of hell shall not prevail against the revelation of the church. Gates are not meant to be an offensive tool. Gates are a defensive tool. Meaning, they cannot withstand the offense 
that we bring to it because the victory has already been established in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors, Romans 8 says. If God be for us, who can be against us? That whole chapter is filled with all these wonderful declarations. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And we know nothing. And then it ends with, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you feel like more than a conqueror today? Has it been a good week? Are you on top of it? How about next week? How about next month? It's meant to be that way, but it's our choice. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He took all that defeat, all that stuff that would otherwise be on us. He took it all. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. He's given that to us. It wasn't just something Jesus demonstrated. Obviously, he did. But he says, I give this to you. So why are we suffering under the oppression, the discouragement, the brokenness, if we have that kind of authority? Now, we don't do it perfectly every day and never will. They talk about going to the moon and landing on it was a very zigzag affair. They didn't have it all calculated out knowing the moon's going to be there, we're going to shoot our rocket here, and it's going to be there at the same time. They do that today. But back when they first did it, they might have anything from a two-second corrective burn to a 30-second corrective burn. They were going like this to the moon. They got there. That's how our walk often is. But it's meant to be done in victory every step of that way. And your perspective of what's going on in your life dictates that. In World War II, they talk about D-Day. The invasion that turned the war and it was a done deal. From that moment on, victory was assured, but victory was not yet manifest. They lost more lives between that moment and V-Day than they had up to that point. But victory day was assured. Hitler had lost. David was anointed king. That was D-Day. When he was crowned king, that was V-Day. Slain from the foundation of the world, that was D-Day. His death and his resurrection was V-Day. Your salvation was D-Day. And his second coming is V-Day. And we walk in that period of assured victory and learning to manifest it. Americans 
tend to carry ourselves with a sense of victory that a lot of the world doesn't, especially third world countries, but even um, other emerging nations. They just, they don't feel it. In fact, I read an article recently about the CIA and the spying network and in all the electronic technology that is available, it is becoming nearly impossible to carry on spying like they used to. And one of the problems they have, obviously electronics has changed all this, technology is, uh, can do incredible things with tracking you from start to finish as you enter a country, tracking your walk, recognizing you from your walk, as well as facial recognition, all these things. But just prior to this, it had already become fairly difficult for Americans because they carry themselves with a confidence that the people in the nation they would be visiting or spying in didn't. And children could recognize, that's a foreigner. That's an American. And they had to, they had to drill and work on these things to help, help them be more subdued, hang your head, um, don't make eye contact. They have to train spies to do all this because we carry ourselves with a sense of confidence. Christians are meant to stick out like that. Sometimes we like to hide in the background. But even then, like the songs we were worshiping with today said, we need to enter a room and make a difference. People need to sense there's something going on here. What is the opposite of victory? Eh, we're all pretty familiar with that. Defeat, complacency, fear, lack of identity, disobedience, loss, lack of perseverance, fear of failure, fear of being abandoned, left hanging halfway through. Is this really going to succeed? But victory says you have victory over sin, over the flesh, over the enemy. You have victory in salvation, victory in hearing, victory in obedience, victory in finances, victory in endeavors, victory in everything you set your hand to do. It is blessed of the Lord. Is that what you're walking in? Is that what we see manifest in the Christian world? To walk in victory, you must know God. You must know who you are. You must know what you're called to do. You must know your next step and know its timing. And you must know you can do it. And then you must do it. Yeah, that's easy to say. So what does victory look like in a Christian life? Victory says financial freedom, time freedom, emotional freedom, freedom from fear, a can-do attitude, a confidence, a boldness, like Caleb. Give me my mountain. Young girl grew up in Nashville, Tennessee with major health problems that left her crippled. She was confined to braces. She'd watch her siblings out playing in the yard. Visits to therapists proved hopes were dim that she would never walk again.
She would ask her folks, will I ever run and play like other children? Her folks were Christians. And they said, honey, you only have to believe. If you believe, God will make it happen. She took it to heart. And for the next few years, in secret, with the help of her siblings, she practiced walking without her braces, unbeknownst to her folks. And on her 12th birthday, she shocked them by walking out of her braces, shocked the doctors. Nobody thought it possible. She decided she wanted to play basketball. Well, she tried out for the Trent team, and as you can imagine, she hadn't really developed those skills laying around in braces. So her sister made the team, but she didn't. And her father wisely said to the coach, my girls come as a pair. If you want the one, you got to take the other. So the coach reluctantly put her on the team, put her in a very worn, used uniform because he knew he was never going to play her on the team. But she came to practice day after day. She talked to the coach and she said, Coach, if you will give me 10 extra minutes, just you and me, every day, I will give you a world-class athlete. And the coach laughed and then realized she was serious. In her basketball endeavors, she was recognized by the track coach. And he signed her up, and she began to demonstrate incredible speed on the track. And by 16, realized this is just four late years after laying her braces down, she was one of the top runners in the country. A few years later, she won a bronze in the Olympic 400-meter relay. She wasn't satisfied with that, so she worked again for the next four years, and she won gold in the 100-meter, the 200-meter, and the 400-meter relay. Her name was William, Wilma Randolph. From not being able to walk to sprinting fast enough to win Olympic races because... She took her folks' advice and believed that she could do it. Can you? Maybe it's not a 100-meter dash in the Olympics. I'm not sure my body could do that anymore. But there's challenges we all face. And God knows where each of us is at. He knows that some of us are just struggling to get through our day. Others have a fairly normal life, but I'm telling you right now, the sense I got from the Holy Spirit was this is for every one of us. It doesn't matter where you are because he has something bigger yet for each of us. If you think you're bit beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you want to win but think you can't, it's almost a cinch, you won't. 
If you think you'll lose, you've lost. For out of the world we find that success begins with a person's will. It's all in the state of mind. Life's, life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man. But sooner or later, the man that wins is the one who thinks he can. There are earmarks of divine victory. We see them in Daniel 6. We're not going to go there. But when divine victory happens, when, when God fights for you, happens when the victory depends on God and not on you. It has marks and characteristics that make the whole world know clearly that it was God who fought for you and gave you that victory. Remember the six-day war that Israel fought. There was no question that was a divine victory. What Israel was able to do in six days didn't even have to fight on the Sabbath against incredible odds because they were a brand new nation at that point. No, not brand new. It had been a while. But they were not in numbers anywhere close. And what we see in Daniel has a few principles I'd like to share. One, you will not need to deny God. When they set up the trap for Daniel, he just kept going the way he had been going. Two, everything will obey and respond to you when it comes to the spiritual realm. In this case, even the lion's mouths were shut. Three, your enemies will be trapped and they will be consumed instead of you. And four, you will be promoted and your status will change. This is what Christians are meant to walk in. And you can, it's available to you through Jesus Christ, through the victory that's already one, as long as you believe it, as long as your perspective is that it's true, that that's mine, that I will continue to stand and press into it. Rick Joyner, 25 years ago, he's a prophet, he wrote a book called The Harvest. After 25 years, some of it has come to pass already, some of it is yet to come. One of the things that grabbed me when I read that book years ago was that the Holy Spirit was going to begin to coordinate worldwide things. And he would say to one individual, I need you to go to this country and do this. And he'd say to another, I need you to go to this country and do this. And to another, appearing random individual, go to this country and do this. And they'd get there and there would be this incredible crusade or whatever the event might be, because God had brought all the key players together through the Holy Spirit. Wasn't planned. One man didn't say, I'm going to hold a crusade in this country, and here's, here's who I'm going to invite. God just orchestrated it. And I say that because it leads in to the closing of what I want to convey today, that there is a much bigger step he wants us to take. So as I said, for a few weeks now, God has been laying on this, this on my heart. And as I would stand up here and I'd make an appeal 
for people to respond and come up to the altar. And I don't say this to try to set the stage for what um, we may end with in that same regard. I say it because I could look at your faces and I could tell they're not there. They're not getting it. They don't sense what I'm sensing or don't know what to do with it. And so there was very little response. And yet I knew this has been building for weeks. There's something here. And so I had a conversation with Lane about it and he confirmed, yeah, we may have to work at this a bit, but I'm telling you, this is where we need to go as a church. Jenny, a couple weeks ago, saw victory. She saw this same theme. Then she repeated it last week. John came up here and talked about an incredible illustration that I know was God speaking the same thing. That if you got a prophetic word and you gave that prophetic word and as a result an individual started a business that had impacted 1,000 or 2,000 lives for the gospel through them being employees. And then what if you didn't? What if you hadn't given that word? What if he hadn't obeyed that word? What that, that business would have never started. Those lives would have never been impacted in that way. That's the kind of step up that God is laying before us today. So he gave me the word preparation. But he clarified. It's not preparation in the usual sense. You're going on a trip on a vacation, you write up your list of things you're going to take with you, your swimsuit, your diving gear, your hiking gear, whatever it might be that you're going to go do. You plan it out, it's exciting, and you prepare for that trip. God says, no, that's not quite what I have in mind when I say preparation. What I have in mind is you have a step to take right now. If you don't know what that is in your personal life, then seek him to know what is the step that I need to take. Because he has something for every one of us. And that step is preparation for a much bigger step. So we're not making all our plans, setting everything out. We're going to take a step. And that step. So, so I had this image of a fairly reasonable step. And then the next step is like this. It's big. And without taking that one step, you can't quite make the next. So you do have to take that step, but it is preparation for a much bigger one. A stepping stone to walking into a new level of breakthrough. It's going to be a stretching experience, getting out of our comfort zone. And it's going to be different for all of us because we're at different levels, because we have different situations we're facing, because God has a different call on each of our lives. But as a body, he's saying, take that step of preparation because I have some incredible places, some incredible things that I want to do with this body that you cannot do without recognizing that I am the author and finisher of your faith, that I have already established victory and that it's available to you 
if your perspective is one that I can and I will. So I'm going to end with a real twist, one that I wrestled with all week. God spoke a few phrases to me in these weeks that I knew were from the parable of the unjust steward. And all week preparing, I said, God, how do you get victory sermon out of the unjust steward? So the story of the unjust steward, the parable that Jesus tells, is of a rich man who has a manager, a steward, who's over his, over his household, over his estate. And he f- hears rumors of that man being unfaithful to his duties. And so he comes to him and he says, what's this I hear? You're going to have to give an accounting and you're no longer going to be my manager. And the manager says, oh my, what am I going to do now? I can't do physical hard labor, digging and like, and the like. So I have an idea. And he called in the rich man's debtors. And he said, how much do you owe the master? And he says, well, I owe him him 100 measures of oil. And he said, sit down quickly and write 50. These are contractual agreements, obligations. The next one says, I owe 100 measures of wheat. He says, write 80. And his whole motive was self-preservation. By uh, getting favor with these people, he was going to um, be received into their households, maybe given an opportunity for another position somewhere. It was all about him. And it ends with a, with a twist. And it's, <clears throat> this is the most, considered the most difficult parable to try to interpret exactly what's going on. And when you begin to research it, there are hundreds of views of what's being said here. And so I'm saying, God, what on earth? It's already difficult enough, and now you're telling me I have to couch it in victory? I don't know what you're saying with these phrases you're giving me. So I'm just going to give them to you, and we can wrestle with it together. As... We've approached this morning. God has clarified some things. So here we go. The steward was bent. His life was broken. He'd had some negative things that biased him toward thinking, to be the man I need to be, I need to cheat. And I need to give you a little historical context. In their day, a steward was given an estate or a plot of land to uh, be steward over. And it, it was a lease. So the, he would say, I will take this property and run it for X number of dollars. And the, the owner would agree, okay, go ahead. So the owner knew he would get his monies. And then the steward would typically sublease to other farmers and they would pay him a fee. And so that's what we have happening here. These are subleasees that he's releasing a portion of their debt. And it was a common practice, unfortunately, to kind of inflate that. 
When I say unfortunately, it wasn't like there was a law that said, you're releasing for this much, so you should only partition this, this much out to each of us. It was more a case where, is it fair? Can they make a living? Can they do this? But regardless, this is the setting we find ourselves in. <clears throat> and so when he's calling in these debtors, he's releasing some of that fee that they were supposed to owe and that is ultimately going to go to the master. So, just as the parable ends with this real twist, the twist being that the owner praises the steward for his shrewdness. This is what makes it a difficult passage. He's cheating the owner, but the owner praises him at the end that he has done this shrewd thing. There's lots of different ways to view this, but here's what God gave me. I heard him say to me, you have a hundred measures of wheat? Sit down quickly and write 200. Oh, great. I'm supposed to increase my indebtedness? What's this saying? You have a, oh, a hundred measures of oil? Sit down quickly and write 120. This is what the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. So here's what I believe God is saying. Do the opposite of the unjust steward. He was unjust. He was a cheat. Don't do it that way. Don't in your brokenness and your hurt and your pain, the things that haven't worked out in your life, the dreams that you have that are broken, seek to do it in the wrong way. Because God has already given you victory. Walk in it. Learn the spirit side of cooperating with God instead of the physical world side of things. Number two, you do need to make a plan, a righteous plan, and pursue it. You need to tune into the Holy Spirit as to what that is, what that step is for you in your life, because it's big. If it's not this first step, the second one certainly is. You cannot stay where you are and be pleasing to the Father. You need to make a plan. You need to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying this morning. Number three, God is saying, increase your debt spiritually. Increase your level of commitment. You are all in. You're saying, I am going for this. Come hell or high water, because hell or high water don't matter. I have the victory. So increase your commitment. Put your shoulder to the wheel. And there is another aspect of this. By the steward's actions, he had created a scenario where in a sense the owner was trapped. By forgiving these people their debts, they automatically attribute it to the owner. Oh, what a great guy he is. He's reducing our debt. It's more money in my pocket. Making it impossible for the owner to reverse 
the ruling and say, oh no, that wasn't intended. He did that on his own. He could not do that without looking like his piety is now obnoxious. He had to go along with what the steward did because it made him look good. And I believe that is behind his praise for the steward. Not only did you set yourself up, you set me up. And I look good, but I can't do anything about what you just did to me. It was shrewd. And God is saying this to us today. He's saying, put me, God is saying this, put me in an awkward position. Put me in a place that I cannot refuse. I dare you. I challenge you. Step into this because I am faithful. So if you find yourself in a place today feeling that challenge, feeling that draw of the Holy Spirit, I I just want everyone to stand, please. I encourage you Maybe it's not this week. Maybe the fullness and understanding or clarity comes in the weeks ahead. But if you want this, if if your heart connects with this and you know, even though we don't know the details, you know this is what God's saying to you. I want you to come forward. I invite the ministry team as well. We just want to stand with you. We want to activate that victory that is already established at D-Day, Christ's death. Your salvation. Because V-Day is what we're we're pressing toward. And this is a major step. So I just encourage you, if your heart connects with this, please come forward. Let's join our hearts together. Let's unite in this move that God has for us.